did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The following episode contains difficult subject matter, including references to sexual assault. Please take care. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. This is Crime Story. Every week, a new crime with the storyteller who knows it best. You're probably familiar with Charles Manson and his cult of so-called hippie followers. Their 1969 killing spree remains one of the most horrifying acts of violence in Hollywood history. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons... On August 8, 1969, actress Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time, and four others were brutally murdered at her home in Los Angeles. The next night, other Manson followers murdered a middle-aged couple named Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Market owner Leo LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were found by their children stabbed and mutilated. Decades later, it's a story that continues to fascinate us. There have been countless books and movies, all trying to understand how a group of young hippies could wind up slaughtering innocent people. Even Quentin Tarantino took up the Manson story in his hit movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But with all the mythologizing and the lore surrounding the Manson family, we've lost sight of the horrible details that made this case so sensational in the first place. Helter Skelter, an American myth, is a recent documentary series that gets back to the facts. It explores how Charles Manson was not this Bengali figure that we've all made him out to be, but rather a master manipulator that took advantage of a particular cultural moment. This six-part series talks to journalists, former Manson followers, and people who knew him growing up, and offers a detailed look at this iconic story. Today I have with me the director of Helter Skelter and American Myth, Leslie Chilcott, and executive producer, Eli Frankel. Welcome to Crime Story. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. So, as I say in the intro, this series really could be considered to be as much about the end of the 1960s and that culture as it was about the Manson family. So maybe, Eli, let's start with you. Can you give us a sense of culturally what was going on, especially in the late 60s when the Mansons were really starting to form and become the Manson family? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the Charles Manson is released in 1967 from prison um, and goes straight to San Francisco and walks right into the heart of the counterculture, kind of at its height, right? It's like the summer of love. It's 1967. Things haven't taken as much of a dark turn as they will in 1968. And the vibes are really positive and people are open to new ideas, new kinds of characters. And the notion back then of a man who sells himself as having been imprisoned by the system and punished by the man, it, it, it resonates. People aren't afraid of, uh, of somebody who has spent most of their life incarcerated or in reform schools. 
And he can utilize that to his benefit. And by the time the murders happened in 1969, the country is really in turmoil. I mean, it is a really divisive, polarized public in the late 60s in a way that sort of mirrors today, which is in some ways why the story is probably so relevant for people, is the massive dislocation of society and, and values and norms that was occurring. And Manson takes advantage of that. America's youth is looking for answers, is looking for a new ideology, a new way of believing uh, and new value systems. And Manson, while rejected by many people, is able to pick up enough um, young men and women who believe in his sort of twisted ideology. So it, it is a ripe time for this to happen. And just to be specific, in case people listening aren't remember the historical context as well, we're talking about the Vietnam War, we're talking about the Kennedys being killed, we're talking about civil rights movement really ramping up and violence on the streets. And there's a lot, like you, you say, like culturally, there's a lot of people being displaced from their comfort zones during this time. That's right. And there were tons of race riots across, across the country. And one of the biggest ones was in 1965 in Los Angeles. So that was all in the air. And it was sort of ripe for someone like Charles Manson to come along, like Eli said. But also people were turning to music and counterculture. And people were taking a lot of drugs, especially hallucinogens, and what's interesting about that is this was the first time people were taking LSD in mass quantities. So there weren't warning labels. There weren't, you know, all of these laws. So, you know, Manson, he had a he had a, a, a shtick and he would play this song and he would attract both women and men. Look at your game, girl. What a mad delusion. Living in that country. And he would say things initially that weren't wrong. Come live out on our commune. Let's share everything. Let's have new names. You know, why should we waste food? Let's go wait outside grocery stores and go dumpster diving and get food that people don't want. And, you know, look at Vietnam. Nixon doesn't want you, but I'll, I'll take you in, you know? And he did all of the things that we now know cult leaders do. He had a few ideas that he repeated over and over again. And in the beginning, it was all love and it kind of was a good idea to be on a commune. And then he just got incrementally darker and his followers did not notice until they were in it. You know what I find so fascinating? So, you know, as a young kid, Charlie Manson was kind of the boogeyman with my upbringing, like as in my age, right? I remember him being on the magazine covers and those scary eyes and learning about his followers and even like not necessarily my parents, but for, I knew that he was kind of used as like a threat to children to like, don't do drugs and like stay away from strangers and don't go to California. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> um, don't hitchhike. Yeah. Don't hitchhike. Yeah. But, you know, now, like I've done a lot of work over the last 15 years on course of control and narcissistic leadership and cult leaders. And what I found so fascinating about this was that he really was a typical cult leader, like all the ramp ups and the and the bullshit uh, philosophy that was taken from everybody else. But this sort of behavior continues to happen. And I just found it interesting that you, you made us see that he is something that is part of our humanity. And we are now continue to see over and over again. Yeah, I think I think you're on to something there, because before Eli and I did this series, I was under the impression, which was wrong, 
that there was a certain type of person that falls for this and that I would never fall for this, right? But having interviewed so many, you know, official quote unquote family members, because they weren't called the family and they didn't call themselves that. They were called that after the crimes. And they, there was no type. One woman was in the cult because her car broke down and she just happened to be picked up and she came from a good household and her parents weren't fighting and everything was fine. But everybody was so hunger culturally for something alternate or new that they fell for it. So both the women and men, some of them were from broken homes, but some weren't. And it was really interesting that this was the first time these manipulative tactics, it's not the first time in history by any means, but it was the first time in this era that that that, that kind of behavior was happening. And some of the members even then thought Charlie Manson, these were just campfire stories. You know, was he really going to start a race riot and all of that? Hardly anyone believes that. That was something we can talk about that was created um, and sort of uh, expanded upon by the defense because the crimes were just so horrific and had no motive that people started trying to figure out why they happened. But the I guess what I'm trying to say is the biggest takeaway is, you know, no one was really immune at that time. Um, and that was surprising. You think it's only a certain type that could fall for that. And Charlie Manson could have just as easily become a rock star than a cult leader. And had he been a little better player and singer and not so crazy, that might have happened. He knew all the right people, you know, and that's a frightening thought. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, uh, go ahead. Real, real quick, just to Leslie's point, Tex Watson, Charles Tex Watson from Texas, who was the main perpetrator of the murders as ordered by Charlie Manson, was a star quarterback and had loving parents who fought hard against his extradition back to California after he went to Texas after the murders. Um, you know, that that was a solid upbringing. And the guy was a, you know, a rock star in his hometown and w would have gone on to great things in, in Texas. Um, this wasn't somebody who had a traumatic childhood or who suffered at the hands of parents who didn't want him. You also do a good job uh, even just bringing us uh, the more thorough picture of who Charlie Manson was. I mean, that's also important because not only did it not seem like his followers were necessarily a type, I think it was really important to understand where he came from. And again, that was so wrapped up in a, in a myth to me. But you guys really spend quite a bit of time in his early years, even introducing us to a woman who speaks warmly about Charlie Manson. I mean, it's really, it was quite shocking the first few times that I heard her speak. So, I mean, Leslie, let's start with you. Like, how important was it to hear? How deliberate was it for you to include her in this series? I think it was really important because, you know, you have to hold two ideas in your head. So in episode two, we go into Charlie's childhood. And the truth is his childhood was horrific. Does it excuse anything that he did? Absolutely not. But you always, you know, we all debate the nature versus nurture and how much was circumstance and how how much was made in a product of his environment. And, you know, it was really important to me to go to his hometown, to go to the actual prison where at five years old, he was admitted to this medieval prison to see his mother, you know, who was there. She and her brother had pulled, um, you know, a little robbery stunt and and she was caught and put in prison. And he was living with relatives that were either too harsh or neglecting him. And, 
you know, is it okay for a moment in a series to feel empathy for someone who we know turns out to be so heinous later? And I think, you know, in theory, every child is innocent, right? You know, and starts out, but you can see there were signs when Charlie was younger, but not definitive proof. You know, he wasn't the kid in the bad seed. He wasn't like torturing. He loved animals. He wasn't torturing animals like a lot of future uh, killers do, right? So um, he did have a terrible childhood, and I think it was good. It was good to see and learn about that, even knowing what he became later. We can't walk away from the truth of the matter, and that is, you know, it was a pretty sad upbringing. Eli, where, when did we start to see Charlie Manson becoming more problematic? Then, I mean, like Leslie said, he had a, child, a childhood that was tough. Uh, but tell tell us a little bit about where we start to see that the maybe the good seed turning a bit bad. Yeah, I mean, I think the real break began when his mother essentially abandoned him, and he desperately wanted her affection which later plays out in his sort of twisted relationships with women and control and power over them. He was uh, completely out of control with his own mom and her sort of participation in his life. And I think there's obviously really, you know, psychological reasons for his bizarre relationship with women. But when everything really took the darkest turn seems to be when he joins um when he goes to a reform school in indiana yeah right around 14 15 years old his first day there he's sexually assaulted by multiple boys and also people who work at the institution and then pretty soon after that and the sexual assaults continue for a while but pretty soon after that he turns into a predator and he sexually assaults other boys that arrive at the institution he uses sex with both men and women to uh, for control and to cause fear. One of his, it seems like one of his greatest joys in life is controlling people through intense fear and sexual abuse and assault, as we see later on with many of the family members, is his way of completely controlling them and dominating them. So I, I think that the reform school experience was so awful that it eventually just turned him into this sort of horrific predator, both psychologically and physically. And that continues because he gets caught stealing cars and some other crimes and he continues and he's in prison. And what kind of a uh, uh, an effect and impact did prison have on Manson? Yeah, I, I mean, Manson's influences are so disparate. And one of the more interesting ones that we talk about is he becomes a student of Andrew Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is sort of a celebrated poem regarding business and how to comport yourself in business and to to win people over with your personality, to sort of convince them that you have the best product and the best services. I mean, he uses that. He uses the advice of pimps that he meets in prison in terms of how to control women, how to make them dependent on you, psychologically, emotionally dependent. Uh, he he learns from criminals and crooks how to manipulate the legal system. He's, you know, he's pulling from so many disparate sources, but all of it funnels into this really twisted little personality of his that is hell-bent on controlling people. And eventually that plays out many years later when he's finally released in prison and the opportunity presents itself in the middle of, you know, March of 67 into the summer of love. 
So, Leslie, can you just quickly describe what life on Spawn Ranch was like in the early days? Like, set us a scene. Where is it? Who's on there? That kind of thing. Okay. So, um, in the late 60s, if you take Topanga Canyon north um, for miles and miles and miles and miles, you come to Santa Susana Road, and there was a place that they called Spawn Ranch that had been like an abandoned ranch pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And so when they would gather there together at night and take their LSD or Belladonna or whatever it was, there was singing and dancing under the stars, musical performances, guests would come. There was a giant heap of clothes. Everybody would share their clothes and draw from the pile. And there was no television, unlike in Quentin Tarantino's version. Um, They did, there was a television in one of the houses and they did all watch the moon landing together. Um, But in general, news of the day, whether it was print or radio or television, was kind of kept away from the family. And it was like an adult crazy camp for adults with no supervision whatsoever. A lot of times when you came to the Manson family, Charlie would have a way of extracting money from you or your parents, you know, to pay for their food. And all their meals were taken together. And there was a building with mattresses everywhere on the floor. And they would all sleep together. So that's kind of what was happening out there. And it really was on the fringes of society. There were no drive-bys. There weren't people dropping by. Um, They were very, very isolated. And there was a lot of sex going on. There was, yes. And there was a lot of free love kind of sex. And there was also a lot of meet me down by the river. And, you know, Diane Lake opened up to us in the series and she talks about how, you know, Charlie raped her when he was upset with her um, when she was a young teenager. And his misogyny actually was surprising to me, which sounds silly, but I didn't know. I think it's because he hid under the guise of being such a all-loving hippie, quote-unquote hippie, that I, I was taken aback by the misogyny in Charles Manson. That is a bit of a surprise for people because he was a master seducer of men and women, you know, both in the carnal sense and in the mental sense. But he was very quick to turn these women into objects. And even some of the early members like Diane Lake, you know, he had turned on her and was sleeping with her when she was only 14 years old. You know, and he was controlling and one one day it was love and the other day it was abuse or rape. And that, I think, is is a little bit surprising. If he ever wanted help with anything, it would be one of the male members. They were generally in charge. Um, But there isn't really a division as to how devoted they were. There were men and women that were equally under his spell, which I find fascinating because there's a tabloid-esque quality, you know, to the Manson family. And people go off in all different directions. But there was a real moral seriousness underneath the spectacle. And and that's really what we tried to concentrate on in the series. Yeah, let's go there now. Like, tell me what it was that drew them all to him and what did spark that incredible devotion and loyalty, but... Um, that philosophical sort of coming together that he ended up producing. Yeah, I mean, part of it is always a great mystery. Why does this cult take hold and and this one doesn't, right? A lot of it has to do with the cultural currency of the time, which we've talked about during the Vietnam War and coming out of the Summer of Love. 
we can't discount the value of drugs and the controlling of food, the controlling of information. But Charles Manson forced his followers to confront issues, whether that's racial tension, um, war, domestic violence, the toxicity of the media, the emergence of celebrity culture was happening at the time. And it was really a small group of people just completely isolated, going off the rails through, you know, drug use and isolation, right? And he started training them. They would role play and he would send them on these journeys and break into people's houses and rearrange their furniture and do nothing else. He called them creepy crawlies. And that's incredibly creepy for the time. And as the family got larger, the cult leader, in a sense, had to perform new miracles, right? So whether it was stealing cars, precurring drugs, he just kept having to expand his mythology. Right, which gets us into Manson's race war theory, which becomes a backbone of his ideology, so to speak. So, Eli, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so his theory, which still remains a major point of contention whether he actually believed in this or not and how much of it was just a, a sort of way to get the family members to believe in him and stay in the cult and believe in their mission nobody really knows and he never really can clean on that but the his the idea that he propagated among his people was that eventually and soon there was going to be a race war that would engulf the country and eventually the world and that uh, disenfranchised folks across the world were going to rise up against the man, against the system. And in the United States, it would have been that uh, black folks would have uh, risen up against their uh, oppressors, white people, and would eventually slaughter all of them. But the Manson family would avoid that fate by going out to the desert and living inside a mythical land that was underneath the desert. And all they had to do was find this hole that was near the Panamint Mountains in Death Valley, and they would find a paradise there where they would procreate and eventually become 144,000 strong. And eventually what would happen is that when uh, the black community when, uh, would eventually take over, they would realize that they were not able to run the world, and they would go to Charles Manson and his now very large family and ask them to please be the ruler of the world and take over. And that so essentially Manson is telling them, we're going to be the eventual oppressors. We're going to be the ones who are in control and have power. And for a man who went to reform schools and had a horrible childhood, this was the ultimate dream of, of securing ultimate power over everybody. And he sold that to his group. So this theory is critical because the popular understanding of the Tate-LaBianca killings is that Manson wanted to kickstart this race war. But your doc suggests that there is really a lot more to it. So Eli, can you tell us about Bernard Crow and the Black Panthers? It's something that I actually had no idea about before watching your doc. Bernard Crow was a mid-level drug dealer in Los Angeles. And in the summer of 69, there was a drought uh, of marijuana in the city. It was really hard to buy weed. So Bernard Crow is desperate to get his hands on marijuana any way he can. And he's introduced to, uh, to Charles Sex Watson by Sex's girlfriend. 
And Manson desperately needed cash that summer in order to escape into the desert. They need dune buggies. They need guns. The uh, it, It's kind of all hands on deck to figure out how to raise some money. So Tex Watson, who was always trying to impress Manson, comes up with this idea of ripping off this drug dealer. And they actually end up uh, meeting in this hotel in El Monte where uh, Bernard Crow gives him $2,500. Tex walks into the to the motel and escapes in the backside where uh, one of the other Manson family members is waiting in a car and just disappears. Bernard Crow is furious, figures out where Tex lives, which is in Spawn Ranch. He calls up Charlie Manson and threatens to bring down an army of Black Panthers. They're going to kill everybody at Spawn Ranch if he doesn't get his $2,500. Manson's freaked out. That's a real threat to him. And so he and another family member named TJ drive down to the apartment where they threaten Crow. And then TJ is the one who's supposed to shoot Bernard Crow if they can't settle affairs there. And Manson ends up, uh, TJ kind of backs out, doesn't want to do it. Manson grabs a gun from him and ends up shooting Bernard Crow, thinking that he's dead and only finds out later on that Crow actually survived the shooting. And whether it's Leslie or Eli, tell us how that sort of starts to um, snowball towards the larger violence that starts to happen. Why is that significant? Because at that point, Charles Manson believes now that he's shot a member of the Black Panthers, that army that Bernard Crow threatened to send down to Spawn Ranch to slaughter everybody is on its way. And the entire summer, he's worried about that, that these black, this Black Panther army is going to show up in his backyard and kill him. And so he's got to get out of town. He's got to get to the desert in order to escape them. And he needs money in order to do that. He has to buy more dune buggies. They need gasoline, food. It's all the basic staples they're going to need to survive out in the desert. So he decides the way to get money is from this sort of hippie uh, musician who lives in Topanga Canyon named Gary Hinman, who he's convinced has a stash of money and decides to send some of his family members down to Gary Hinman's house to kidnap him and extort money from him. And then that begins a whole other series of uh, unfortunate events that eventually ends up in the slaughter of the Tate, uh, of the Tate LaBiancas. Yeah, because, uh, which I'd also, I keep saying, I didn't know this, I didn't know this, and that's what I like so much about your series is you really place it in so, so many more years. There's a killing before the Tate and the LaBiancas killing. That's Leslie, right. you want to tell us about that? Yeah, it's the killing of of Gary Hinman. Charles Manson had sent sort of a friend of the Manson family, not someone that was living there, but let's call him an associate, Bobby Beausoleil, to extract money from Gary Hinman. And um, that doesn't go well. And eventually, Charles Manson comes over and orders Bobby Beausoleil to take care of business. And he cuts Gary Hinman on the side of the face and his ear before he leaves. And... Bobby Beausoleil, sleep-deprived. Um, he actually describes the murder in the series um, from a series of over 30 phone calls from prison that I had with him. But basically, he ends up killing Gary Hinman, fleeing and getting caught almost right away because he's driving out of town. He's tired. He pulls over. And like, you know, the the all the evidence is is on the car and a, and a cop just is like, oh, why is this car on the side of the road? And he had left everything in the car. And he wasn't in his right mind either. 
And so that's the first murder that sets off this desperation combined with all of this fear and paranoia from drug use that they need to go live in the desert, that people might be coming to kill them and all of those things. Okay, so Eli, how was the Hinman killing connected to the Tate-LaBianca murders? Can you put those pieces together for us? Yeah, so when Gary Hinman was killed, which initially they, the Manson family and Charles Manson did not want Hinman to necessarily be killed, but he refused to give up all this money and to give over the cars because he didn't have... Manson had this idea that, that Hinman had $20,000 stashed in his home, which he didn't. And so they killed him because he didn't give them $20,000. At the end of that, they realized, okay, we got to hightail it out of here. But Manson came up with an idea of how to get rid of his enemies, the Black Panthers. And what he ordered his family members to do was after they murdered Hanman, was to go back and write on the walls in blood messages that would suggest this was the work of Black Panthers. Like they put up a bloody handprint that was supposed to look like a Black Panther symbol. And they wrote on the wall, political piggy and, and another message that was supposed to insinuate this is the Black Panthers. The idea behind that was to get the LAPD convinced it's the Black Panthers. They go after the Black Panthers, they arrest them, and Manson gets rid of his greatest threat, which is this invasion of Spawn Ranch by the Black Panthers. Um, it, that did not happen. The police did not assume it was the Black Panthers. And Bobby Beausoleil, when he's arrested, he tells Manson, you have to get me out of prison. I did this for you. And if you don't, I'm going to tell the police that you ordered the murder of Gary Henman. So Manson's in real trouble now. His whole world's about to come crumbling down. And he comes up with an idea of how to get Bobby Bosley out of prison. If we murder a bunch of people in various homes and we put up the same kind of political messages in blood on the walls, the police are going to realize, oh, the Henman murder was, was perpetrated by somebody else, not by Bobby Bosley. So it's an attempt to spring... Beausoleil out of prison by creating a false, similar set of circumstances between the Hinman murder and the Tay-LaBianca murders. And it doesn't work. They, the police don't suspect that the Black Panthers are responsible for any of the sets of murders. They never make the connection to the Hinman murder until later on. The plan goes awry. But that's why he ordered these murders. It was as an excuse or a sort of a false flag to spring this guy at a prison, his follower, who was threatening to undo everything that Manson had built. It's really drug-addled thinking, isn't it? <laughs> it yes, is. That, exactly, exactly. It's drug-addled thinking, but also because, Eli, you have such an excellent way of explaining things, it does sound as if it was more organized than it was. He never sat there and said, I'm going to be this logical it was these paranoid delusions and then, okay, now go do this. See if there's any money at that house. I've been there before. There's like a famous person living here. And, you know, it, it one thing kind of led to another, but it wasn't like he's like, I'm going to commit two separate series of murders in different places in L.A. to deliberately throw off the police. That was sort of there. But through everybody that I've talked to, Bobby Beausoleil in particular was like, Manson never told me he was doing that. And I never asked Manson to do that. Um, I asked Manson to help me. Right. But I never asked him to do those things. 
And all the stuff about the race war and, you know, not all of them, but the majority of them just kind of went along with it and just thought it was campfire talk or maybe Charlie knows, you know, some of the people maybe were a little more taken with Charlie's story at that time and and had been with him from the beginning um, and, and and maybe fell for that a little bit more. But it's never as organized as it sounds. You know, we have the benefit of putting this lens on it in the end. And Eli's right with what he was saying. But there was not like a meeting of the executive committee who said we're going to do this. He was just like, oh, now I'm going to do this and blah, 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 blah. Fair. And they're most famous. We we only really know them because of the next set of murders that they do, because they they killed a very, very famous woman who was married to a very famous director. And you guys chose to show some very graphic photographs of those murders. Can you tell me why you choose to include photos of Sharon Tate's dead body, all the other dead bodies, the uh, you know, some of the victims had words cut into their bodies with knives. Um, there's a lot of blood in the pictures. I've seen a lot of crime stuff. And this was really uh, like more than I'm used to seeing. Uh, I'm curious what it was that made you guys make those decisions. So it was a very difficult decision. Um Francie and I, the editor of that episode, episode four, edited that scene four different ways, which in and of itself was was very difficult. But what's happening at that stage in the series is you're you're enmeshed in the story. We're doing this anthropological dig and we're trying to figure out what's happening because unlike, you know, cases we see, criminal cases on television, the puzzle pieces don't always fit. And a lot of this just doesn't make any sense. And Charlie himself would explain these monstrous acts, whether it was, you know, what happened with Gary Hinman or the creepy crawlies. Um, he would he would explain these monstrous acts by retreating into philosophical abstractions. You know, oh, it's the man. Well, what else can we do? We're just reacting against all of this. So as the viewer is having an understanding of how some of these teenagers and young adults could get pulled into Charles Manson's web of debauchery. If we didn't show the actual, so we did not treat those photos. We did not color correct them. Those are the actual crime scene photos. There's only one per murder. There's no music. It's absolute silence. And because people are wearing Charles Manson on their t-shirts, there are clubs there are anniversaries. You know, there's a group that goes to El Coyote restaurant once a year and has dinner on the anniversary of the murders. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens. We had to remind the viewer that no matter what was going on in the culture at the time, no matter what happens, no matter how we try and place a theory or some sort of understanding, something really bad happened and you need to know what it was. Yeah, and it was quite a stark contradiction, as you say, to the young women who you have lots of film of, you know, traipsing in and out of court, wearing their cute mini dresses and their long hair and their little smiles and things like that. Um, and that's exactly it, why we had to do it, you know, yeah. because they were getting LSD in prison and they were talking about fairies and there were real consequences of this misbehavior, and we felt that we had to show them. 
a young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice, fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Eli, how did the murders shift things in both California, in the United States, culturally? How did things shift because of what happened? Yeah, I mean, it's, listen, this, uh, the result of the murders has become such a legend in and of itself, and it actually is accurate. There was a significant shift in Los Angeles away from leaving your door unlocked and hitchhiking. And uh, people became very paranoid that, you know, as we're entering the 1970s, that bad things can happen. And it also was a sea change for the counterculture. There was all of a sudden this awareness that the, uh, you know, the hippie movement, peace and love, even though the politico side of things was getting pretty aggressive and and was stirring things up, like at the Democratic National Convention in 1968, there still was a sense that the counterculture itself was geared towards um, being good to people and being good to each other. And all of a sudden, you've got this hippie cult that's murdering people randomly. That perception changes really quickly. And it absolutely had an effect on um, sort of the counterculture's relationship with mainstream at that time. And it's interesting, initially, the counterculture almost sort of defended Manson and the family against this. They didn't believe that this um, this group was capable of this and felt that they had been railroaded. But pretty soon, as the evidence began to come out, the counterculture definitely tried to distance itself from the Manson family. Um, but it, it had a demonstrable effect on, I'd say, more than just Los Angeles history or or in various cities. It had an effect on the entire country. Leslie, how, what kind of effect or what kind of impact has, has Manson and the family had on our understanding of cults and coercive control? Where does it place in that history of, of what we understand now? In the modern era, it's the origin story, right? Because we weren't throwing around terms like serial killers, spree killers. And this is an interesting thing, too. People often lump Charles Manson in with the serial killer um, category, but technically, he's actually a spree killer. And I, I bring this up because it was a series of murders committed in close proximity and time to each other. But you have to remember, he's not the one who, even though it was a conspiracy and it's proven in a court of law, he didn't kill Gary Hinman. He hurt his ear. He didn't kill any, you know, uh, Sharon Tate or anyone at that household. And the same thing for the La Biancas. But people get that very, very confused. But what they do remember is that he was ordering this this type of violence. And, you know, the FBI didn't have its its, its behavioral sciences unit yet where they would, you know, uh, say, oh, we're looking for this type of serial killer. They hadn't done their whole study of serial killers yet. So this was very, very early on. And there were cults and communes and things, but they were kind of more innocent. And you would grow your own food or you would do this or you would do that. But there wasn't this dark underbelly. And I can't underemphasize the use of serious drugs and how that changed everything. And these drugs were new. You know, LSD came about in the 60s and it was being handed out like candy. And it was very inexpensive. If it wasn't given to you, you could buy it inexpensively. 
So it's a bit of an origin story. It also doesn't, you know, it's also cemented in history because the murders took place in August of 1969. They were caught a few months later. And people say Manson brought down the 60s. And I always laugh. And I'm like, well, it was the end of 1969, literally. But those kinds of of, of simple sayings stick in people's heads, you know. And the fact that he could have been this rock star and that he looked kind of just like a runt who wasn't capable of anything. I think a lot of other cult leaders, you know, have a plan. Or if you talk about the Unabomber, he has a manifesto. And Charlie was just never that organized. And so retroactively, as a society, we have tried to apply some sort of rubric. This was his absolute intention. And even Vincent Bugliosi, when he was the lead prosecutor prosecuting the case, you don't have to prove motive when you're prosecuting for murder. But the murders were so not understandable, he advanced this race theory, which really wasn't a well-developed theory because he thought he had to provide the jury with something because this was just too bizarre, you know? And so we don't like things that don't have answers. We don't like riddles that we can't solve. And this has all of those things, and it kind of drives us crazy. And so we're constantly looking back at this time and how weird it is. And then you have you know, the antics in the courtroom. And then you have Squeaky who, you know, holds up a gun to President Gerald Ford years later. And then you have all the books and all the studies. So it's just it's just not ever going to go away. And what we wanted to do was, you know, knock the air out of out of Charlie's, you know, perception. And he was just a runt without a plan that manipulated people. He was not, as you said at the very beginning, any kind of Svengali. So, Eli, you know, he, he really, uh, Charlie Manson, like you said, there were T-shirts and clubs, and, and he's always been very close, you know, on the surface of our, every time there are uh, lists of cult leaders or, like you said, serial killers, he's always there. Um, his life uh, ended in uh, 2017 in prison. It was huge news when he died. Um, what what do you think is so endearing, enduring about him? Yeah, definitely not endearing. No, sorry, um, that was a bad mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be a great question, would it? Wouldn't it? I'm going to need some time to answer that one. Did you um, ever start to like Charlie Manson? Yeah. No. Yeah, I know, right. Um, look, I think that ultimately what keeps this story going is this fear, this in innate fear that that society has of being controlled by outside ideas and influences that are actually dangerous. And I think that underlying in our psychological makeup, at least in our modern times, there's this sense that there's so much that's influencing us now. I mean, you think about social media, you certainly think about politics and, and certain people that... <laughs> are popular in, in, in among certain folks in, in politics and um, in in television, mass media, consumer culture. We're being influenced by all these outside forces. How much of our ideas and the way we think is really us? And Charles Manson is just the the darkest side, the darkest version of that. This idea that a Svengali, that somebody who is 
um, which also leads to why some of these myths have been perpetrated. The idea that some hypnotic genius can take over your mind and make you do horrible things. There's something inherently human in that fear. And certainly in, in our modern age, with all these outside influences, I think that people have a sense that they're not sure what exactly is their own thoughts and what is something that's sort of been imposed by them or they've absorbed from the outside world that may actually not be true or may not be beneficial to them and and ultimately could actually be dangerous. And he just fits the picture of that so perfectly. And I think that's what people sort of, what continues to be the underlying theme that drives so much of the fascination with this guy. He took are teenage and young 20-something girls and boys who many of them appear like any other American teenager and turn them into killers. How could that have happened? And and underneath that, I think, is this inherent question, could it happen to any of us? You know, and what I actually really loved about your series, too, is it showed just how manipulative he was with the craziness. I mean, I ex- I appreciate that he had mental health issues. For sure he did. Uh, but I really didn't realize how manipulative he was, that he put those eyes on a little bit on purpose. And Leslie, you say that there wasn't a lot of planning, which I think obviously is quite fair. But I do see him as somebody who manipulated his image well. He manipulated his image well. You're absolutely right. And he did play with words. I think one of the reasons he still resonates now is he also had complete and utter disregard for the truth. And we're seeing that now. He would just command that certain things were true or that certain things were that way. But I think this this looseness with the truth or just manufacturing whatever he wanted really resonates today. You know, during the newfound freedoms of the magical 60s, you know, everybody was roaming, searching, right? You could find yourself rubbing elbows with just about anyone, a rock star, you know, a governor, a president, even a Charles Manson. And with social media and the interconnectedness of today, you can DM people, you can find people. We're in a similar era where you feel like you can you can get to anyone. And with so little regard for the truth, who do you believe? So I think we have more cults than we've ever had because people are searching for the truth. They can't find it. And thank God this one person has an alternate path, you know, and it's always like a little bit at a time and you don't notice when things start to go dark. You know, you could argue that half the country is in a cult right now, you know, so (laughs) so I'll, I'll I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it with that. Well, guys, thank you. I mean, I really enjoyed the the series. There's so much more in it. It's it's complex and nuanced and you speak to people that nobody's ever heard from before and I think it's wonderful and I really really appreciate the time you've given me and our listeners now. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime Story from CBC Podcasts. We drop a new episode every Monday. You can get our next episode a week early on CBC Podcasts' YouTube channel or by subscribing to the CBC Podcast True Crime channel on Apple Podcasts. In addition to early access, subscribers to our True Crime channel also listen ad-free. 
Crime Story is written and hosted by me. Our producers are Alexis Green and Sarah Clayton. Sound design by Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Jeff Turner. Our video producer is Evan Agard. Our YouTube producer is John Lee. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is CBC Podcast Senior Manager, and Arif Narani is the Director of CBC Podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.